0: It's time to have the kids all come up front and have a seat. So come on forward, find somewhere to sit. All right, come on up. Lots of kids today, great to see. Good job sitting inside that white line, way to go. There's more room over here, guys. Come on over. All right, good to see everyone. Are you guys ready to hear from God's Word? Great, all right. Well, as you know, we've been working our way through the book of Genesis, right? And so far we've seen that God has created the first man and placed him in the garden, right? And then God created woman to be the perfect helper for the man, right? And so next, God gives us a little glimpse into his design for marriage, all right? So here's the next verse, the first verse we're going to be looking at this morning. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, I know that most of you probably aren't quite ready to get married yet. Is that right? Are you ready to get married yet? Not yet. Okay, good. Just checking. But it's still good for you to learn about marriage and God's design for marriage as well. All right. So let's say we have here, we have a young man and he is there with his parents. All right? And then here we have a young woman, and she is there with her parents. All right? And let's say this young man and the young woman, they're going to get married. All right? Now, here's the question. What do they need to do first? Do you remember what the verse said they need to do? Ask each other, Ask each other would be good to do first. Yeah? Yeah, they need to leave their father and mother, right? So they won't be able to have a good marriage together as husband and wife if they're still with their parents, right? So parents, look at your cute, adorable kids. Here, turn and look at your mom and dad. Look at your cute, adorable kids up here and know that someday they will leave you, right? And so you as parents should be parenting in such a way that you are preparing them to leave. Usher, that's your cue to start handing out the Kleenex and wipe away the tears. All right? Okay, kids, look over here. So, kids, you guys need to leave your parents. Have you ever thought about that before? You need to leave your parents. But do you remember what that verse says? Who is to leave their mother and father? Yeah, not the boy. Yeah, you're right. They need to leave. But it says, a man shall leave his father and mother, right? Are any of you full-grown men yet? Are any of you full-grown women yet? That means you don't have to leave yet, all right? It's not time to leave yet, is it? You're still working to get there to be a full-grown man or a full-grown woman, right? And so you're in that process. So you have some time before it's time to leave your parents. But the first thing that our man and our woman have to do is to leave their father and mother. So we're going to help them do this, right? All right, so the man needs to leave his father and mother, and the woman, she needs to leave her father and mother, right? So the first thing they have to do is they have to leave their father and mother. And next, do you remember what the verse said next? What comes next? After they leave, they yeah, they hold fast to each other and they become one flesh, right? They're to hold tightly to each other. So we're going to help them with that. I have my glue stick here. All right, so we're going to put some glue on here. Yeah, we're going to get them to stick together tightly, right? Because they are going to become one, and so here they are. let's put them together, yeah, you have to press it down, stick hold tightly, right? We have to get them tight together, right, And now they are one, right? They are tightly connected together, they're not able to be separated, right? They're tight together, and so they are physically connected together, right. But with real people, not only are they physically together, but they're also together. They're one in purpose, right? They're united. They're working closely together to love God and to serve God. And so God's design for marriage is one man and one woman leaving their parents, holding tightly to each other so they can bond together as one to love and serve God. That sounds pretty neat, doesn't it? Yeah, you think you want to do that someday? That's a great thing. All right, so you can look forward to that someday. So thanks for coming up. You can go back and have a seat.
1: All right. Thank you, Pastor Jeff. I was wondering what you are going to do with this text. Sometimes preaching the regular sermon is easier than the children's on things like this. So uh, marriage, we're in Genesis 2, 24 and 25. Uh, plan for sermons are to finish chapter 2, and then next week we're going to go to the last several chapters of Matthew leading up to um, Palm Sunday and then Easter, so we'll spend three Sundays, God willing, there, and then we'll see from there. So this is last for a little break in Genesis. The marriage, uh, one author wrote that I read this week, it says, more wonderful than Anyone on earth knows. That is, there's more wonder and more mystery in marriage than anything else. God made it. <clears throat> One of the reasons he made us male and female with two sexes is for this purpose. <clears throat> marriage is so wonderful that you have to leave the most dear relationship in the world, your mother and father, in order to enter into it. That's how wonderful it is. The mystery of two individual Beings of different sexes being so united that they're one. And then, of course, as we'll see in Ephesians 5, the real mystery is that uh, marriage between a man and a woman reveals Christ's relationship, his covenant love for his bride, the church. And so marriage is one of the most amazing, mysterious realities in the world. And yet, as you know, it is also very difficult. And you're not very good at it. And neither am I. And so we need God's grace. Let's read, asking God to be gracious to us and pray, and then I'll look at these couple of verses. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. O Lord, you are above the heavens, and yet you set your son down as a husband coming to his bride. You have established this glorious gift of marriage on earth in order to reveal your word and your son's love for his bride, the church. Your word is eternally true and potent, and we only have life by it. And so give us grace now to consider your testimonies and see how all of our life lives are to be lived in light of your commands and all that by faith. And amen. All right, so, again, before this, we have God creating the universe and then the earth as kind of a house fit for us in six days and then he made two humans, Adam and Eve, who were not the result of millions of years of evolution. They weren't a whole bunch of humans and... Somehow God chose those two to arrive above the rest. Now there's two human beings that God created in his image, Adam and Eve. Adam first from the dust, and Eve second from Adam, out of his rib. And then as we saw last week, God brought her to the man in verse 22. When God made Eve out of Adam, he walked Eve down the aisle. That's why we have fathers walk their daughters down the aisle because God walked his daughter Eve down the aisle and presented her and brought her and gave her to Adam. Uh, and so God performed the first wedding. <clears throat> Marriage is God's creation. It is a created event institution. Uh, If you read old dead people, they often talk about marriage as the first government. The most important institution that was given in order to create peace and harmony and rule was the home. This is why we are so appalled at government intrusion into our homes. Because uh, the government is to allow freedom within the home and not tell you how far apart your studs have to be in the walls of your bedroom. So God created marriage. He instituted it. And in these, these two verses, we have a world of truth about marriage. Just consider these. We see again that it's created by God. It's His. It's sacred. It's of highest importance. You should leave your father and mother in order to enter into it. You might remember in the New Testament, Jesus said, if you're not willing to hate your father and mother, you can't be my follower might be part of that. Marriage is so important that you are to leave your father and mother. It's exclusive. You are to hold fast to, if you're a man, a woman, if you're a woman, a man, one, until death does part you. There's nothing, there's no relationship that has more demands as a, connotations of not good things, but more demands on your life than your marriage. Nothing is as exclusive to you. It's permanent. You're to hold fast. You're not to have the kind of relationship with anybody else that you are with your spouse. It's permanent. It's intimate. One flesh, implying sexual union. There is no intimacy in your life like there is to be in marriage. And so it's loving. It's two individuals In a covenant union, caring more for the welfare and goodness and prosperity of the other than themselves. And it's good. It's holy. They were naked and not ashamed. Marriage is righteous. It's holy. All of those truths about marriage in these two verses. So let's start with the purpose of marriage. What marriage is for. <clears throat> How many of you come from a background, church background, denomination that uses the Westminster Confession, the Westminster Catechism? Any Westminster people? Only one, really? Huh? Well, Rick, <laughs> uh, I did. Well, actually, I came from one that used the Heidelberg, uh, but close enough. So, the first question is kind of, what is the chief end of man? What are we for? but to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And one of the reasons that they answer that is because of what marriage is for. You'll know that everything that God created in the world exists for Him. He made you, He made everything about you in this world to glorify Him, to bring Him honor, to reveal what He's like and what He does. Everything exists in order to showcase, to unveil, to communicate what God is like and how God relates to man. That's what it's for. When I was in seminary, for the first year and a half, the professors I had, I think were trying to convince me that it was all about me. They had a very man-centered view of life and ministry, in a sense of... um, when you do church, try to figure out what people want and meet their needs. It's all about felt needs. It's all about creating a business that serves the needs of consumers. That, they weren't saying it like that, but I believe that was the, would have been the inevitable end result of where they were taking us. And then in the second semester of my second year, I had Dr. Haefemann. And Dr. Haferman was a disheveled man. His hair was always messy, his tie was always loose and cockeyed, and he had a binder about that thick. That's all he walked in with, the binder, and he'd set it on his podium, and it looked like to me, randomly open it. And when he opened it, he opened the Bible uh, in our eyes to what Scripture is. And the first, one of the first things he said is, I want you to know that you were created for God's glory, and... Uh, you're also created for joy, and those two things are one. Everything in your life exists for God's glory, and my view of life and ministry and everything changed from Dr. Hafeman. He taught me uh, the lens with which to view this for. So marriage exists to show God's glory, and I want you to see it. So let's look at Ephesians 5. If you have your Bibles, turn further to the back, way to the back, In Ephesians chapter 5, so if you get to the New Testament, the book of Matthew, keep going, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, keep going, keep going, keep going, and then you'll hit Ephesians eventually. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 33 are some of the most central, important verses in the Bible to understand marriage. The two verses we're in are, and then these verses. And I just want you to look at verse 32 for right now. So what I'm trying to do is say, God created marriage, and He created marriage mainly for His glory, to reveal Him. So when I say for God's glory, what I mean is, a marriage between a man and a woman exists so that when people see how they relate to each other, they see something about what God's like. That's what it's for. Okay, So marriage is like a living... Biography written so that you can read into it what God is like, and so I want to say, okay, where do I get that from? Well, I get it mainly from this verse. The mystery, this mystery is profound, and the mystery that he that he's referring to is verse thirty-one, which he's quoting our text. Verse thirty-one: Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this mystery is profound. Now. Anybody who's married goes, duh. <laughs> like a man holding fast his wife. Yeah, she she's uh, a cavern that the depths will never be discovered. Right, guys, you figured out your wife yet? Yeah, <laughs> this guy is like <laughs> looking at me like I'm the dumbest bastard ever seen in the world. Right. Yeah, it's a mystery. But the mystery he's referring to isn't the mystery of a man with a woman. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it, what's the it? Man leaving his father, mother, holding fast wife, one flesh. And I I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Marriage exists as a reference to who Christ is And how he relates to, loves, leads the church. So another way to say it is, your marriage is nothing more than a metaphor. It's nothing more than an extended illustration meant to explain who Jesus Christ is and how he Husbands, the church. Your marriage has been given you by God so that when others see it, they can know something of Christ's love and leadership and sacrifice for the church. So Christ is the husband. The church is the bride. And you as a husband are to be living with your bride in such a way that somebody can get some kind of glimpse of how Jesus husbands his bride. And you as a bride are to relate to your husband in such a way that when somebody's watching you, they can get some idea of how the church is to submit to and respect and follow Jesus as Lord. Another way to say it is, one of the things we've been carrying through these two chapters is, in creation, one thing that God is saying loud and clear is it's not about you. It's not about you. You were created for God. Your life has meaning in reference to God. You exist on this earth not to glory, bring glory to you, not to draw attention to you, not to get your ego stroked, not to get your back padded. You exist to live for the glory of God. It isn't about you. Isn't that good news, though? One of the ways you screw up your marriage all to pieces is when you make it all about you. You were not meant to bear the weight of having others focus on you. Now, in the beginning of this sermon series on Genesis, um, did I put the word in here? I suddenly escaped. Remember the word I used about how we're so egotistical? What word did I use? And I kept saying it over and over again and somebody got frustrated with me. Narcissists. We are narcissistic. You're narcissistic. You live in your marriage as if it's all about you. You as a husband want your wife to be all about you. You as a wife want your husband to be all about you. And if you're denying that right now, you're lying. And I love you. You are just lying. If you're kind of looking at your last week and saying, no, no, I really was all about my wife. I... Your wife has a pointy elbow for a reason and she ought to make use of it right now. Or or give them the look, ladies, right now. Give it to them. Give them the eye. And when we come to marriage, we come to God looking at you and me and saying, it's not about you. Your marriage exists for me. Your marriage exists to show how... I sent my son, who took responsibility for the sins of my people, sacrificed himself, rose from the dead to give life to them, and how they then are to love and submit to him as Lord. And so marriage is packed with meaning and worth. Where do you go to figure out the meaning of marriage? Where can you go to figure out what your marriage means? If you go to a bookstore into to the marriage section, you will find very little help. You'll find a lot that can screw you up. It'll be all about better communication, right? which is helpful. But if you don't have the meaning of marriage and the reference point that it's about God, you will never get to good communication. You go to God's Word. You and I need God's Word. We cannot know the glorious, mysterious meaning of marriage without God's Word. God must reveal it to us. You would not know... Ver- what the truth is in verse 24 25, if God had not, by His Spirit, inspired a man named Moses to write it down. You need God's Word to understand you. You need God's Word to understand your marriage. You need God's Word as a husband to understand a little, your wife. You need God's Word as a wife to understand what it looks like to relate to your husband. You and I need God's Word. We will not get this apart from it. You will not get your Marriage apart from this. You cannot help other marriages apart from God's word. This is the horrible thing in the church today. So much of the marriage counseling has no reference to the word of God. You go to marriage counseling, they do not bring to bear the actual truth of God's word on marriage. One of the things that happens in marriages, we'll get this in a minute, when there is fighting and there is long-term disharmony, it almost is always in relationship to man as male and woman as female. The issues underlying our sexuality. And you will not find that in marriage counseling in the church today. Why? Because I don't have reference to God's Word. The first thing in marriage is God made them male and female. And if you're having problems in marriage, it's almost related to male and female. And it's almost always related to the man feels like a child, the woman treats him like a child. Almost always. You want to have problems in the bedroom? A man who is impotent or a woman who doesn't want to have sex, it's almost always because she doesn't want to have sex with somebody that she looks to as a son. And he doesn't get aroused by somebody who's treating him like that, and he's acting like that. We need God's word in relation to marriage, brothers and sisters. And where we start in God's word is Christ and his love for the church. That's what marriage is saying. You will not have a good relationship with your spouse until you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength who spent his son's blood for you. You want to learn how to love your wife? You've got to love your Savior. You want to learn how to submit to and respect your husband? You're going to learn to submit and respect to Jesus Christ as your Lord. It starts with Christ. That's what your marriage is for. So God created this marriage which is filled with good with the companionship and the sexual pleasure and the laugh and the spiritual growth. He's given you all of this world of good in it in order to glorify himself. And this gets to like the underlying truth in the universe. God gets the glory and we get eternal good. That's what you see in marriage. You are given just a world of good in marriage. It's hard. We'll get that. It's hard. Marriage is hard. Being a single is hard, but marriage is hard. It's work. But there's so much good in it. And so God gives you all of this good, and in all of this good, He gets glory. That's how God wired the universe. Good for us. All the glory for Him. Real good for us. Tuesday nights at home, around the dinner table, husband and wife. Good! He's getting glorified in that. Sitting next to your spouse in church with your arm around each other, holding each other's hands, or five kids between you. Good! This glorifying God right now. you got a cold, and your spouse is helping tear, take care of you. Now, if you're a guy, you're whining and complaining. and feel like the end is and your wife is looking at you like, Get over it, you slug. She gets a cold, and she still cooks and cleans and takes care of the kids. But there's companionship when you're sick. This is good, and that's glorifying God. And then the beauty and pleasure of sex. And that's glorifying God please see the goodness of God in marriage. When we say it's all about His glory, we're saying it's so good for us. And we have this rightly aligned. And one of the great goodnesses of, of, of marriage that glorifies God and reveals Christ in His church is the permanence of marriage. Is the permanence of marriage. We see sometimes... Where big name kind of celebrity types, football stars, uh, I don't want to say politicians here, but sometimes politicians, kind of arts, big name people where they'll uh, retire or step away from it because they want to spend more time with their family. They leave this career that's bringing them wealth and fame to hold fast with the commitment to and permanence of marriage. This this kind of reveals this stunner in our text. Most people, when they see the big-name NFL star retire early because they just want to spend more time with their wife or maybe with their children, and we're just stunned by this. How? And, and that, that's the same kind of stunner in verse 24. Leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Now our culture is a little less family than this was. And, and not rightly so. Not of goodness. And so we don't feel the, of, of verse 24. Moms get this, I think. Dads, I uh, you know, like I'm all—I love my children. Please take this right. Like I'm ready for Mandy and I already. Right? But I, I mean, I love my kids, guys. I love you. I'm glad you're still at home. But there's come a day. Uh, um, it, there's no one as important in your life as your mom and dad. They shape everything about you. And here is God saying, leave them for this. That shows you how vital and permanent marriage is. And so there is an issue in marriage of this loyalty, this unswerving commitment, no matter what, to the other. You know the marriage vows, right? In plenty or in want, in sickness and in health, in good times and in bad times. death does part. Why is that? Why are those vows in marriage? Because Christ will never leave his people. Because Christ husband of us his bride will never ever ever forsake us he will hold fast to us and it's not because we're so strong it's not because we're so cute and lovable we bring nothing to the marriage but sin debt And he brings nothing but blood-bought grace that keeps us his and cleans us up and makes us better forever. And so, when we have disloyalties in marriage, when we have marriages that are more like distant roommates than intimate lovers in marriage, when we have divorce or unbiblical reasons, it is telling a lie to those who are watching about Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that he's a part-time lover, that he's got eyes for another, that if you frustrate him enough, he'll cash you in for a younger model. So there is a permanence to marriage. Now, in this permanence uh, idea, I want to talk about kind of harmony. Last night, I was boiling sap. It's fun. Late. And a pack of coyotes, uh, I believe, was chasing our cat. And they were yipping and barking and yelling and howling. And it sounded like this big war. And ten minutes later, our cat came screaming out of the woods. So that's what I think. Either our cat was drawn to it or she was instigate, he was instigating it. And it, as I was thinking, a lot of marriages are like that. You're at each other's throats. There's warfare. There's petty squabbling. There's arguing over the silliest of things. There's grudges held. There's coldness and distance. And if we are to hold fast, this really ought not to be among God's people. Now, it's because of sin. It's evidence of how fallen we are. Adam and Eve did not have this. They were naked and not ashamed. But so often our marriages are filled with coyote-like barking and biting and so forth. It's because we are so proud. It's because we are so concerned with me and getting mine. Now, the difficulty in our day is husbands are constantly being browbeaten into never arguing with your wife. And husbands do need to argue with your wife sometimes. You're supposed to lead. You're not supposed to constantly be a doormat. part of leading people are loving them enough sometimes to say no and stand up. So I'm not saying that, men. You probably, as a man and a husband, need to do a better job of fighting with your wife. My parents fought and they they fought well. Um, Sometimes really well. Uh, But they loved each other and they forgave each other. But I, I just, take stock of your marriage here, if you're supposed to have this one flesh union holding fast, there's so many disagreements. Husbands, you're to love your wives. Christ loved the church. You shouldn't be so stubborn. Just When you're in the middle of an argument, what are you thinking about your wife? A friend of mine that I know thinks bad things about his wife. Right? You do that, I do that. Sometimes what I think about my wife, and if it was put on the screen, you probably wouldn't want me as your pastor anymore. And if you think it's just me and not you, you're, as far as I know, you're no more righteous than I am. And how about you as a wife? What are you thinking about your husband? What thoughts are going through your mind when he has disappointed you or an argument? Let's just take this text and say, what should we be thinking about him? What should you as a husband be thinking about her? This is the one that God has told me to leave my family for. This is the one created in God's image that God uniquely brought us as one flesh together. If you're a man, you should be thinking, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. If you're a wife, you're thinking, this is my head, this is my God-given husband. We need to start learning. When it, Paul says you need to be renewed by the transforming of your mind. What he means is you gotta, we have to learn to stop thinking carnally. We have to learn to stop thinking fleshly. We have to start learning to think biblically. In the middle of warfare, and you can apply this to your friendships, okay, singles, whatever, this, this is easily transferable to the workplace, to friendships all over the place. Take what the Bible tells you about the person you're in conflict with and learn to know that you have Christ, you have everything you need in him and let me start thinking what the Bible tells me about that other person and not just my fleshly, angrily, fallen words that if I had any guts I would say. Because I'm treating them like I'm thinking those words. That's the thing, right? You're too cowardly to say the words but you're passive aggressive that you'll treat the other person in light of those words. You know what I'm saying? Right? Right? And sometimes if the temperature is hot enough or the argument is long enough, those words will slip out. And then you'll say, I didn't mean that. And you're lying through your teeth. What actually happened is you were shaken enough to say what you actually believe. And it reveals the depths of the wickedness of your own heart towards your mate towards the one that you are to do good to until death does part you. And you have said some awful things to your spouse, haven't you? And doesn't that reveal how much you need the grace of God to change you? Which gets to the point of your marriage is for your sanctification, The perp, one, one of the purposes in glorifying God is putting you with somebody who's a different sex than you, somebody who came from a different family than you, somebody that often views the world very differently than you, is so that you can be more like Christ in that marriage. It's a not supposed to be easy. Don't. One of the books by I don't know if it's Paul David Tripp or his brother, it, the title is What Did You Expect? The book on marriage. What did you expect? And the premise is you have two sinners living in tight quarters. What do you expect? But we go into marriage just thinking, this is going to be so good. Because before marriage, you put on all this happy lying stuff, right? You're not you in the dating. <laughs> you're like this haloed version of you. That isn't you. Right. And then suddenly you get married and you're like, who is this? Where did all the niceness and romance and thoughtfulness go? We should flip it around, shouldn't we? We should be more objective and cold in the dating time and then turn it on after we say, I do. But anyway, I just want to encourage you, because of the permanence of marriage, let's put to death our squabbling for Christ's sake. Let's lay down. Now, on the other side of permanence of marriage, and I'm talking to younger people, so if you're younger and single and want to get married, because marriage is lifelong, take care who you marry. Now, when I say take care who you marry, please don't hear delay marriage. That's something going on in our culture today. What's happening in our culture today is we are making sexual, immor- sexual immor- immorality for our children just about um, sexual immorality a reality because we're teaching our children to delay marriage until you got through college and a good job and a home. And then they're in four years of a dating relationship and they are going to commit sexual immorality in that. It's, it's inevitable. So you should marry... Somewhat quickly, but very wisely. You should rely on the input of others. The first thing to take care of who you marry should be take care of the pers- kind of person you are. So many times we're always focused on what kind of a spouse am I marrying? What is she like when you should be taking stock of yourself? You should spend your younger years becoming the kind of spouse that you want to marry. You will attract what you are. You will. So take care for your own sanctification. Take care for that. Be way more concerned about repenting of your sin than dealing with the kind of person you're going to marry. Second, marry a believer, which means you should only ever date and see believers. You cannot be yoked to somebody in an equal way who has totally different commitments than you do. I'd, I'd a special caution to women here. You are entering into a lifelong union with a man that you are to look to for leadership and care and protection in every realm of your life. And sometimes you as a gal are instead looking for a nice guy that you can dominate. And so you'll settle for an unbeliever. Because he's a nice guy, he does treat you nice, but he will never say no to you, he will not lead you, and so you're willing to settle there. And to the guys, I just got to say, we got to grow up, guys. You got to become the kind of man that our daughters should be glad to marry because you work hard, because you take responsibility, because they can trust you, because you're spiritually alive, because you have zeal during worship. And then please marry. Let, let me conclude with this. In marriage here, I said this before, we've got to keep saying it. There are three purposes for marriage and sex. Okay, there's three purposes. God gives us marriage under the umbrella for his glory. So if I'm answering the question, so I said marriage exists to show the glory of God, to reveal how Christ loves the church, and you might say, how? Well, in the Bible, there's three big kind of hows. There's A, B, and C. And the A is procreation. Procreation. Marriage is a one-flesh union, which implies sexual union. We are given the desire, we are given the body parts to fit together, sorry to be so explicit, it's obvious, that work very well and bring pleasure and joy and intimacy. So your marriage will is as healthy as your sex life. Now, it's as healthy as other areas, too, but that's one area you should be considering. And sex is, firstly, for procreation. It is for pleasure. Um, it should be enjoyed. And, and you, as a husband, should be considering your wife's pleasure in sexual intercourse. And you, as a wife, should be considering your husband's pleasure. You, as a husband, this is one of the real difficulties of pornography, if you view, or view pornography, it is portraying a woman who looks like a woman, but in all pornography, they portray women in sex who act like men. Women in pornography are ready at the drop of a hat and, and get real into it immediately. Okay? They, they, they show... They want men to watch pornography by portraying women in pornography acting like men in sex. And so you have young men growing up watching pornography, getting into marriage, thinking their wife is going to be just like that. And that they don't have to do the work of loving and talking and and developing a relationship to help her want to engage in sexual intercourse. And so they get very frustrated and disappointed when their wife isn't acting like a man. It's if you want to look at it one way, it's actually portraying homosexual sex with a man and a woman. Because women are not like men in sex, are they? And men are not like women in sex. And so in sexual intercourse, the husband should be getting to know his wife. What is she like? How can I love her outside of the bedroom? How can I care for her and create intimacy beyond just the time when I want to have sex? As as you've heard, right? Sex starts in the kitchen. And that doesn't mean foreplay. That means creating intimacy. That means relationship. I'm getting a different shade of red currently. Um, So... It's for procreation, sex is for procreation, which means we ought to be thinking about con, uh, contraceptives. Uh, if sexual union is for one main, or a main purpose of procreation, we do have to be aware of what one, one author calls the contraceptive mentality. By contraceptive mentality here I mean where we in our culture are, beginning, are, are seeing and have seen for some time children as op- obstacle and imposition to our lives where you use contraceptives because you want to live your life and don't want the interruption of a child. That is completely opposite of the biblical mentality. It's actually wicked. It's the same mentality of abortion, really. And and so marriage is for the sake of procreation. It shouldn't be avoided for that kind of mentality. Children, if you read throughout the Bible, like place in Psalm 127.5, it says, Blessed is the man whose quiver is full. And again, sometimes you want to ask, how many kids? I don't know. Quiver full. I'll just stick to the biblical language. Does that help you? It's creating a heart that loves children. It's creating a heart that sees that one of the reasons God has put you on this earth and put you in a marriage is to have and raise godly children and that sex is for that. We, we want to bear fruit in our sexual union, not be fruitless. Now, there are some contraceptives that are permissible, ones that prohibit conception. Abstinence would be one of them, kind of the natural ovulation. Now, if you're going to do that, you're likely going to have children, so I encourage you to do the calendar method. That'll ensure fruitfulness. <laughs> uh, condoms, barrier methods, those are good. But no contraceptive method that ever leads to the destruction of a fertilized egg should ever be used by a Christian. So here we have kind of the morning after pill, any kind of chemical, abortifacient, IUD. And one of the difficult ones is what is commonly referred to as the pill. I've covered this before. I want to cover it again. Now, there could be a right use for a woman of the pill for medical reasons. I know there are medical applications. But if a woman is engaged in sexual intercourse with her husband, the pill, the third way, there's two ways that are just keeping pregnancy, from keeping conception from happening. but the third way, in case an egg is fertilized, is to keep that fertilized human being from implanting in the mother wombs and therefore aborting it. And and if you read the documentation of the pill, it actually explains this. And so if we're looking at it, the pill there is immoral for a Christian and other methods should be used because it could potentially destroy a fertilized egg that is being created in God's image. Now what about those who can't conceive? And, And here, this is often attended to with much... Difficulty and sorrow and hurt and even shame, which shouldn't be. Um, it could be the husband. It could be the wife. One option that we should not take up is in vitro fertilization. It destroys human beings. It takes eggs out of a woman, unites them with sperm, and creates a whole bunch of little human beings, most of which are destroyed and I know that's very difficult to hear because sometimes you want to make use of it. If you cannot conceive, a good, godly, biblical solution is adoption or foster care. It is good. It's hard. I am sorry for your pain. You want something that God has for His wise purposes withheld. I don't know why. I agree with you. But we want to handle these things with biblical faith. All right. Uh, one other thing under that, if you would turn quickly to 1 Corinthians 7. In, in this one flesh union, one of the purposes of sex that we are sometimes reticent to admit in our culture in, in, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 7, it says, Now concerning the matters about which I wrote to you, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with life. So the Corinthian church was saying it's more spiritual to forego sexual union within marriage. That is, I'm married, but we're so spiritual that we're not going to have sex. And Paul says, don't. Why? Verse 2, because of temptation and sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, sex, the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Now, that's not allowing for abuse. That's not saying a woman's body should be open to abuse. No. In a normal, healthy relationship a husband, a wife should be using her body for her husband's pleasure, not for abuse. Okay? This is not condoning sexual abuse. I shouldn't even have to say that. Just to be clear. And likewise, uh, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. So do not deprive one another. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So one of the purposes of sex in post-Genesis 3 fallen world is for protection from sexual immorality. Okay? Now, be careful here. If your spouse is committing sexual immorality, you might have to look at whether or not you've been withholding yourself, a pattern of that. But that does not mean you're guilty of that sin. What happens sometimes when a a husband or a wife is in sexual matter, they'll blame the other? That's not what this is saying. Now, you could have some responsibility to bear if you've been withholding. True, and you should look at that and admit it if you do. But you're not to blame for his or her sin. And and, and he or she should never blame the other. So, there is a need uh, for sex to avoid sexual sin. And we just want to say what the Bible says here. This is one of the issues in homosexuality. Our culture wants to tell those who are struggling with desires for the same sex or are actually having sex with somebody of the same sex that godliness is just abstinence. And when you're doing that, you are putting that person in an impossible situation. Look at the Catholic Church. Okay. Can we finally, for once and all, say it is not a good idea to force abstinence on people who want to have sex? It leads to a hundreds of years of wreckage of sexual abuse and immorality. Homosexuality is simply a desire to have sex that's been perverted. And the God-given solution of 1 Corinthians 7 is to repent of your sin, work heart is not going to just go away by itself and marry and have sex with your wife or your husband. That's the solution. That's the solution. And so in our day, our hyper-sexualized day, a couple in committed marriage, sex is a glorious thing. It's a protection. So I would encourage you as husbands to cultivate intimacy with your wife, to love her, to date her, to care for her, and to please her in sex. And for a wife, I would encourage you to use your body. Read Song of Solomon. The woman there is a really good model to use your body to serve your husband's pleasure in sex. That's what you've been given, according here. Now, lastly, in marriage... God loves marriage. He has given it to you as a gift. And so he's for your marriage. Okay? If God has created it, he's created it for all these good purposes. He's for it. One of the best verses in the Bible that we love in Second Peter is, God has given you everything necessary for life and godliness. This includes your marriage. This includes this lifelong, permanent commitment of love to another. And so God is for it. He has given you resources in the church through his word in order to help your marriage be more healthy and honoring to him. And so have hope here. Have an expectation of growth and success and joy in your marriage. It's hard work. If you think it's just going to come by doing nothing, it's not. And so I want our young people to grow up knowing marriage is a good gift to pursue it, to get ready for it. Singleness is a gift too. We're not preaching on singleness. This text is about marriage. We'll get there when we get to 1 Corinthians. And so love marriage. Go to it. Help it. Enjoy it. Let's pray. Oh Father, I thank you for your word and for instructing us in this Great, mysterious gift you've given us in marriage. Uh, God, I pray, give us grace in marriage. Grace as husbands to lead and to love with intimacy and affection our wives. Grace in marriage for wives to love and respect their husbands. Grace to our children and all of our failings and to our church. Um, Grace for those marriages that are hard right now, that they would get help and that they would turn to Others who are wise and godly for that help. So, God, we praise you, though, mostly for your Son, who is our husband, who has given himself for us and has promised never to leave us nor forsake us for another, and who will bring us eternally to himself. And so, we give you glory for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. The charge is this God's grace through Christ by his life and death and resurrection does provide both forgiveness and freedom from all manner of sexual sin. And so turn to Christ. He is gracious, and he'll not only cleanse, but free you from it. Okay, There's actual freedom. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, to present you blameless before his presence, of His glory, with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and forevermore. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week in the Lord. I love you.